You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, happy Easter. Yes, I know Easter was last week. And no, I'm not still up on the roof. But did you know that Easter continues for seven weeks, for 50 days? We begin to focus in on the resurrection of Jesus in each day with every dawn, knowing that Christ is risen. That's our faith. That is our love. This is our hope. Well, if you didn't get a chance to join us on Easter Sunday on the roof, I hope you will, because we got a new perspective of where God is in this suffering, that God is right here with us in suffering. But what now? Where do you go when you've been on the roof? I mean, it's all downhill from there. That's actually the question I want to ask. What now? Because it seems like it's one that we're asking as all of our plans are being thwarted and we're having to get used to watching one another in small squares on television screens or computer screens. And first is not a place that's filled with complainers. We are people that are hardworking, we're giving, we're serving behind the scenes. But we're wanting to know what happens now? What's, what next will happen? A lot of you have not been complaining about all the things that have been canceled, about trips and honeymoons, senior trips, vacations that you want to be able to go on. And we just keep waiting each day, what now will happen next? Today, 40,000 people will have died from the COVID virus. More than 700,000 in the United States have been diagnosed with it. And we're dealing with 2.5 million people across the world that have been confined because of the COVID virus. And now that we're in our apartments, confined probably through the end of April, we just wonder, what now? What will happen next? Just this week, Tim had a what now experience. Tim is our maintenance person. And he left uh, just after I did, and a police officer was in our parking lot. And the police officer exited his vehicle, came toward Tim and said, what are you doing? And Tim said, well, good evening, officer. And the officer wanted to know what Tim was doing because churches had been deemed non-essential the weekend previous where the New Mexico governor said, stay away from churches. Well, as Tim and I talked about this the next morning on Wednesday, he was wondering what to do how to respond when an officer of the law asks you to comply. Well, here at first, we've chosen to comply with the mandates. We're following the orders and the directives from the government, and we've been thinking very carefully about what our battles are. And that's what I was telling Tim. As Christians, we need to choose our battles wisely. Conflicts tend to escalate where one person raises their voice and the other person raises it much higher. And so there was no need to do anything about this police officer, but smile and nod and continue doing what we're doing. Other churches have chosen to engage this conflict a little differently, to sue the government or to have church in their own parking lot, pressing the boundaries of what is allowed. So it was pretty unsettling to have an experience like this, even though it was very polite. As Tim told me that story, 
About midday, I was working on an email to the elders, and he called me back. And he said that the same police officer had come to the parking lot. And he exited his vehicle and came to Tim and told Tim he was sorry. He had talked to his supervisor and found out that Tim was perfectly fine to be here working and doing maintenance in the building, as long as we were complying with a do-not-gather policy and having no more than five people in the building at one time. And Tim was really struck by the fact that this officer had taken the time to come back and give an apology. You see, a lot of people are just trying to do their job in a very confusing time. And it's pretty easy for us as we're frustrated or uncertain what to do to maybe pop off, to get upset and frustrated, maybe even at the wrong person, at a spouse or a child, or even a first responder just trying to do their job. The earliest Christians were simmering in this reality of Jesus Christ being resurrected. They were looking for him. They were watching for his return. They were wondering where he was in this new arena of living. Paul had been put in jail repeatedly. They were dealing with hostile governments. They didn't have the formation that they wanted or needed. And so we turn to these, these times of first century Christianity. In fact, we're going to be looking in this series, What Now?, at the oldest New Testament document. No, it's not the Gospels. They refer to the oldest chronological information, but I'm talking about the oldest letter in the New Testament, the one that was closest to Jesus and the thinking about Jesus. It was written by Paul. Now I think of Paul as a planner. I don't think you become an elite rabbi accidentally. You don't become a Pharisee by happens chance. It comes from a lifetime of study, a lifetime of learning and training, and preparing to be there. And I wonder what Paul was facing as his plans were constantly outside of his control and constantly being changing. You know, you think about him being a Jew who was leading a squelching exercise of stifling these Christians and followers until suddenly he met Jesus and he became a follower of Jesus. He turned from persecuting Jesus to being a missionary on behalf of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul and Barnabas, their very first missionary journey began in the 40s, A.D. 40, out of Antioch. And they did a survey of a number of churches, teaching them and instructing them, moving on from each church. They had a little council where Paul's plans were changed even more to realize that the gospel was intended for Jews, for non-Jews, and for pagans. And so he and Barnabas set off again. Their plan was to head towards Asia. Their plan was not Macedonia. As Paul would go across the country, which is modern-day Turkey for us today, he began going to the places of prayer and to the synagogues. He would visit them and teach them about Jesus. He was something of a reporter, a journalist, providing news and updates about who Jesus was. His plans were not going as he intended and as he wanted. Can we relate to that? Where school is not happening as we would want, our work is not happening as we want, where we just want five minutes of peace from our kids? Our children's minister, Amanda, she made the comment that it seems like the world is being run by a fourth grader right now, where people look around and they say, yeah, there was this virus and it was really scary. 
And then we had to stay home from school for like a month. And then it was Easter and it snowed. It just seems like everything is a little bit crazy. So Paul's approach is to bring the news about Jesus wherever he goes, to fully represent Jesus. But he began to feel deflated. He began to feel defeated in this mission as he's kicked out from one town to the next. And he gets to the very edge of Turkey. He gets to Troas and goes to sleep one night and has a vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia was just across from Turkey. It's in modern-day Greece. And there in Greece, Paul he got excited to think about going over to Greece. And he got up and he fired everybody up. And they got in the boat and went across over to Macedonia, crossing the Aegean Sea and lining up to get on the Via Ignatia. The Via Ignatia was the major technology of the day. This was Rome's great innovation, a stone road connecting the country, the empire, from one end to the other. So they got on the stone road and they go to Philippi. As they get to Philippi, everything's going great. Paul even heals a little girl who's a slave and who is demon-possessed. He casts the demon out of her, and that's when everything goes wrong. I know a lot of us, we might want uh, Paul to come along and cast some demons out of our children. Well, it didn't work out well for Paul. The whole town is thrown into a riot. They beat him and Barnabas. They throw him into prison. He's chained, and then an earthquake hits. But they don't run away. Now here's the strange thing about this experience in Philippi. Paul gets set free because they don't run away. And Paul won't leave. He says, did you know I was a Roman citizen? Now wait a second. Roman citizens could not be thrown in jail. They couldn't be beaten without charges filed against them. And so he says, if these authorities want to let me free, they need to come and do that themselves which they do with great apology, still asking Paul to leave. Now I find this really interesting, that Paul chose his battle. He didn't confront the government before his beating. He didn't tell the government about his Roman citizenship during his beating. He didn't even tell the government about his Roman citizenship when they put him back in the jail cell after his beating. He waited until the right moment when they would have to respect Christians in a new way. And he gave those Christians in Philippi firm footing when he could most help them be established. Well, they regroup and they get back on the Via Ignatia and they head down to Thessalonica. There in Thessalonica, this is the capital of Macedonia, a wealthy city, a seaport city, a beautiful place to be. And very quickly, in fact, just in a matter of weeks, three weeks to be exact, everyone is upset at Paul again. They say, this is the guy who's throwing the whole empire into chaos, upside down. He doesn't believe in the empire. In fact, he thinks we should serve a new king. This is not good information. In fact, the Christians silently tell Paul to leave at night, and he does so. He gets off that Roman road, that Via Ignatia, and goes south to get away, down to Berea. Things go pleasantly there until the people from Thessalonica hear that he's in Berea. And they go down and they chase him out of Berea. I can't imagine how defeated and downcast Paul must be 
that what he thought was a divine mission to go and help the people of Macedonia, these people of Greece, turns out where he can't even spend time with them, training them and teaching them. And it's at that point that Paul adapts again, making use of a new technology. And he writes a letter. The oldest letter that we have in the New Testament, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And he writes it to this group of people that he loves so dearly. At this time, Christians were definitely on the radar of the empire. The emperor of the time, Claudius, had called Christianity a plague. A plague that threatens to infest the entire world. Now that's pretty interesting to me, maybe to us at this time, to think about Christianity being thought of like a virus that infects the whole world. Now I want us to think about that in the most positive sense of the term, of how something spreads unintentionally, spreads across an entire world. So let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that God has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. No fancy titles, just people that they had met briefly for about three weeks. And Paul writes to them with great gratitude, letting them know how important they are and how he's praying for them. In fact, he's effusive in his gratitude and thanks for them. That even though they're separate, even though they're nursing their wounds from beatings, even though they are fearful of what will happen to one another, Paul is thankful for them. There's three things that I want us to catch. The first two are pretty quick. First, Paul wants them to know that they are not forgotten. They're not forgotten. And I want you to know at this time that you are not forgotten. The elders and the ministers of this church are praying for you. They are remembering you before God. Coming before you whenever we can't be physically present by offering you into the spiritual presence of God. This is a time when we can be praying for one another and reaching out over the phone and over the internet, through email, and through our website. In fact, you can get on and look at our prayer journal and see who you could be praying for by name, following those prayer concerns and offering them to God. Or it could be that you have your own prayer request that you need to be submitted, that you want folks to know about. Go to our website at firstabq.org. In fact, if you want to go to the direct link, just do firstabq.org forward slash prayer, and you'll be clicked, you'll be put where you can do a link to go straight to our form. You're not forgotten. The second thing that Paul says is to remember your identity, who you are in God. In fact, he tells this group of people that God is their father, God's their dad, 
He calls them brothers and sisters, even though they're not related. It's clear that God made and created this group of people. God loves this group of people. He, he thinks of them as beloved, and He has chosen them. He has selected them. Because of their great response to Him, this people is made by God, loved by God, and chosen by God to be a dwelling place for God. You know, that identity, that message of who we are, is something that needs to be communicated to others, to all the people that we know. That God made you and God loves you and that God wants to dwell within you. That is a good message. So, God, you're not forgotten. You are remembered. Your identity is in God. And then third, we find something about what our work is, what our response is. Your labor and the effort that you're putting forth matters. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. You know, it's not easy during this time to think about what our work is. Sometimes it's confusing. Well, and I get the sense by pairing up work and labor with all of these famous words, faith, love, and hope, I get the sense that this is not easy. Sometimes it takes strong effort. And I'm excited that here in this oldest letter we get these three virtues, faith, love, and hope. We probably remember them most from 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, but here they show up to tell us that our faith, our trust in God, is our opportunity to run to God in whatever circumstance we face, that we can be in the presence of God, trusting God with our situation and with our circumstance. Our love is meant to be pervasive and relentless. We're to cling to God with everything that is within us, to desire to be united with God and connected with God. And also our hope needs to be enduring and steadfast, to not vaporize and thinking about the present moment, but allowing God's future assurance, His pledge and His promise for the destruction of evil to be what guides us and what dictates how we live in this present moment. We can live based upon God's pledge of what He is going to do. Now you hear these words, faith, hope, and love. And I don't want you to begin to figure out a font to cut these into wood and figure out what beautiful color you can put them in to put them up in your home, and maybe you have that. Before we think about the beauty and the simplicity of these words, I want you to think about the wood that these letters of these words might be cut from. These trees that have grown up in the ground, maybe facing times of dryness, times of plenty of rain, maybe fires, winds, bad weather, being shocked by early freezes. Think about the growth of those trees with just one ring every year until it gets just to the right size where it can be cut into planks that then is separated from the ground, separated from the tree. And then those planks of wood are cut with a jigsaw, shaped into letters, the bark peeled off, rough sandpaper applied to take away the splinters and to give more fine texture and shape, right down to the finest of sandpaper, making it smooth to the touch. I want you to think about the journey of that tree from growing all of those years before it's cut into these letters. 
because these are not cute letters. These are strong letters. These are rebellious words. Faith, hope, and love. Every week I try to think about each sermon that I preach being the last one that I might preach. And I think over these last few weeks, I can feel satisfied with the messages of the gospel that we've been exploring. Every week I'm asking myself, what now? What should be preached in this moment? What is appropriate for this time? In fact, one of the prayers that I pray publicly and certainly privately every week comes from 1 Thessalonians verse 5 of chapter 1. I want the Word of God to come not only in word, but with power, with full conviction, and with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you heard the story this last week about Bishop Gerald Glenn in Virginia. In Virginia, the governor on March 15th declared that churches should not gather. And Bishop Glenn chose to gather on March 21st after that mandate. And he said, I am going to continue to preach. It's what I do. God is larger than this virus. And I'm going to preach until they put me in jail. I'm going to preach until they put me in a hospital. Now, are these things true? Is God bigger than the virus? Certainly. But as he goes on to preach, I am essential. I'm a preacher. I talk to God. What happened to Bishop Glenn is that within eight days, he was put into the hospital with COVID-19. Within two weeks, his daughter was posting on the internet that his wife was also testing positive for COVID-19. On Holy Saturday, just last week, Bishop Glenn passed from this life, dying to COVID-19. Our sympathies go out to this bishop, to this servant of God. And I have to step back and ask, is this the message that we would want to communicate? Is this what we would want to fight as our battle? And I have to wonder if that's really what we should do. How do we want Christians to be known? Do we want to be Christians that are known for lawsuits, for pushing the boundaries of the limit? Do we want to be the kind of Christians that try to equate our own plans with God's plans? I think that would be a problem because even Paul could not do that. He did not associate his own plans with the plans of God. He had to remain flexible and pliable and quite calm in times of crisis, not given to overreaction. Our responses matter. Who we are and how we live before God matters. Our labor of love, our faithfulness in work, our steadfastness of hope, all of these things drive us deeply into the assurance and the hope that God has given us. That in life or death, it doesn't matter. We are going to serve God and trust God's plans. Now, I can tell you, God did not cause this virus. God is not happy with this virus. But I know that God can turn the events of this day into good. So I want you to hear this message clearly. You're not forgotten. Your leaders are remembering, remembering you in prayer. And we invite you to pray as well. In fact, your, your identity of being made by God and being loved by God and being one who is chosen by God is clear. And may you dwell in the certainty of our hope, 
a hope that is bound up by faith and love and hope. These three things remain. May God bless you as you continue to seek God and wonder not what now, but wondering how God might use you.